You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are doing this series, Thank Gord, and it is a cheeky kind of take on our culture uh, in contrast to how the Bible understands the whole idea of thankfulness. Our society, we say we thank God, but we don't even know who we're talking about anymore. Um, It's kind of a generic term, a title, God. You might as well be saying thank God until you connect it to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, until you uh, attach it to the history of God's people and how he has worked with them throughout the great narrative of both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, until you understand that it is the God who has created you, the God who has redeemed you, the God who has come alongside of us, the God who has sent his own son into this world. Until you see that, there's not much to really thank. Thanks becomes just satisfaction or smugness even in our society. We're thankful when we've got a lot and then we kind of sit there with it. Today, we're going to look at the connection between thanks and giving. Thanksgiving. You think, because thankfulness is not just giving thanks, it's also actually giving. So Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. By the way, that word for cheerful is hilaritos in the Greek. It's where we get the word hilarious. So I think it's appropriate to uh, wear a hilarious shirt today. I'm trying to justify this, okay? (laughs) I am, okay? (laughs) All right. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people but also is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. All right, there's a lot in this. Um, Andrew Del Banco, you may have never heard of him. He teaches at Columbia University. He wrote a book a while back called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And Del Banco himself is not a Christian, and he has spent much of his career, though, studying religion, and he understands the, the role of religion in our society, and he seems to, to be drawn in his research to religious questions. And he writes that um, the humans' beings need to 
organize the inchoate sensations amid which we pass our days. That is, these disparate things that happen in our lives, just one thing after another. We need to organize the pain and the pleasure, the desire, the fear into a story. And when that story leads somewhere, it gives us hope. Now, when he says the American dream, he does not believe the American dream is that three-bedroom house with a two-car garage. That's not really the American dream. That's not even really American. It's just the American dream that he comes up with, that he thinks it's really going on, is that we are trying to satisfy something. And he calls it the unquenchable human need to feel connected to something larger than the insular self. In our founding documents, it said that we should have that pursuit of happiness. But what was really meant by that document was not to try to find pleasure, but to find something other than, something greater than, some greater story, some greater good that I can get caught up in, that I can be a part of and make something and make a difference in this world by how I'm caught up into it. Happiness itself is not what you're really pursuing, but you are pursuing what you believe is your purpose, your meaning, your destiny, and then the happiness comes along. That's what he's talking about. We need something bigger. And a lot of people right now, their lives are pretty small. They're pretty small and they're struggling. They're struggling not finding that bigger meaning. And he says what they're really finding is that they're just kind of going from one thing to the next, trying to kind of stave off what he calls the lurking suspicion that all our getting and our spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. <laughs> I know, what a happy thought today. I know, but I think it's so true of so many in our society. Have you realized that the, the, the increase, the 70% increase among suicides among young women in our society today, the 25% increase of suicide and attempted suicide among young men, the uh, huge like doubling, tripling of what they call um, deaths of despair from overdose, accidental, whatever, because we're just fidgeting, doing stuff, trying to fill our days to feel something, but we don't feel anything because, and this is the point that I'm trying to make, you need to be attached to something greater. You need to have a storyline. You need to also know that it's going somewhere. And we have that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more so, it's not just that you receive the gospel, believe in Jesus, and someday you'll go to heaven. That's kind of not a, the escape hatch. But everything that you do now and how you use the time that you have, the resources and wealth that you have been given can be part of that meaningful story. And that's what we're going to be looking at from 2 Corinthians 9 today, and actually to 8 and 9. And from this text, what we're going to be studying are these two, only two points today. That is, number one, how giving is a unique test for the followers of Jesus. And secondly, how unique giving 
is a unique calling of the followers of Jesus. So first of all, it's a unique test. Why do I say it's a test? Because Paul does. Okay? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, so these two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, were the longest discourse Paul ever shared with any church in any situation over the whole idea of giving, sacrificially giving for the sake of others. And he goes on for two chapters because at the time, the Corinthians were pretty well off as a church in, in um, Greece. But the Jerusalem church, the church that where everything started, had faced famine and persecution and were now in such poverty, their lives were in jeopardy. And so he was trying to say, hey, it's time for all of us, all y'all, within the Christian church, which was not huge at the time. Corinth was 40, 50 members. Okay? Rome had six to eight house churches within a million people. And each house church was 50 or so members. The churches around the Mediterranean world were just a few thousand, 5,000 people, but the need was great in Jerusalem where it all started, where Jesus had started the church with his apostles. And so he calls on them to give. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So the word prove there, I looked it up, is dokamatso. Dokamatso means to test, to analyze, to assess, to kind of examine. How many of you have had examinations before? Right? How many of you have gone through tests? Some of you, they're in just about two weeks, right? Finals. Here they come. And they basically... When they're good tests, and I, can't, I can tell you half the tests I've taken in my life are pretty bad tests. They don't really test anything other than how you took the test. But when they're good tests, they're pretty authentic. They really kind of show that you know the material, that you understand the material, that you can't just parrot it back, but it really has kind of sunk in. And Paul is saying that your giving, how you take the wealth that God has given you and how you use it for the sake of others is a test. It shows, it proves, it, it, you can analyze from someone's life just what's going on. So he also says in this passage, though, it's a unique test because it's not a command. He says, I'm not commanding you, but it's still a test. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read this. He said, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a hilarious giver, okay? A cheerful one. So if you give, he's saying, it's not because you feel guilty or you're coerced or you're bribed into it. You know, hey, you give this church $100 and the Lord's going to bless you and multiply it a hundredfold. That's not generosity. It doesn't hit the test. And by the way, if you ever hear that from this outside of out, um, joking about it, um, leave. Go somewhere else. <laughs> that is not the gospel at all. If you give because you must or because you want to look good to others, 
um, it just undermines the whole idea of generosity. Generosity is supposed to be spontaneous. Generosity is just supposed to be so freely given that it's just, it shows the genuineness. And it's also something that Paul does not set here a specific level. It's not like when um, kids, if you ever go to you know, any amusement park, you've seen this, right, where you have to be so tall to get on the ride. It's a pretty straightforward standard this tall. By the way, my son has almost gotten, you know, he's 6'5", and there is also a limit to how high, tall you can be to get on a ride as well. They don't usually tell you that, but there are. So you can't be any taller than this either. <laughs> Did you know that? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain, well, you know, if you think about it, some of those roller coasters go on, you know, ooh, you could get like, yeah, we don't want to think about it. But the Bible doesn't have that kind of, this is it. If you hit this standard, you're good, you're golden. In fact, here's a couple instances of how Jesus handled it himself. He saw the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were giving sacrificially more than, you know, I mean, they were tithing everything, and he criticized them for it because they could have given more. Yeah, because they were only given out of their surplus. A tenth was nothing. And then he turns around and he sees this woman, a widow, who at the temple didn't make a show of it, but she put in two copper coins into the collection. And he said, she's given more than everybody else because she gave everything she had to live on. So there's really no, um, here's the standard, you meet it, you're good, part of the test. You can't really tell from the outside. Here's the other thing about the test. Everybody thinks they pass it. <laughs> we do. We think, oh, of course, everybody believes they're generous. You know, um, here's uh, Timothy Keller. He, he's mentioned this, and it's true. I've never had anybody come up to me in my 36 years of pastoral ministry. He said that for his ministry, too. He's never had anybody come up and confess to him saying, Pastor, I'm really struggling with greed. He's had people come up, and I've had people come up and say, you know, Pastor, I really struggle with anger, or I really struggle with lust, but never greed because we don't think we do. And yet the Bible has 10 times more passages warning about greed than it does about lust. 10 times. For instance, when Jesus was um, approached by a brother who was disgruntled with his sibling because he was thinking he was dealing with fairness issues, he tells Jesus, will you judge between me and my brother so that he splits the inheritance. He thinks it's just a matter of fairness. Jesus responds, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. What that really means is he's saying there's all types. It can come in, you think it's about fairness, it's really about greed. You think it's about um, your hard work, it's probably about greed. You think 
it's about you being austere, it's probably about greed. You think it's about self-care, it can be about greed. It can come up in all sorts of ways. In other words, it can show up almost anywhere. So giving is a very unique test. It's something that can't be commanded. And when it is, it, it doesn't work. And we think we all pass it. And it's no big deal. That's kind of problematic. But here's the good news, I think, today. We're going to get into it when giving is actually a very unique calling as well. So Paul quotes in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, Psalm 112. He says about uh, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their, his, their righteousness endures forever. He is quoting a psalm that talks about how generous a person is that the people are by scattering all these gifts to others who are in need. And if you read the whole psalm, you see that Israel was living in community with others. And we knew, they knew their neighbors and their needs. They were connected to all sorts of people. And they understood. They had lived in a society where it wasn't separated out. Have you noticed how in Southwest Florida, probably a little more prominently here than I've seen elsewhere, but we isolate ourselves into little enclaves of people who have about the same level of income that we do in gated communities. So the only people that I see are people who have about the same level of wealth I do. Um, that's not even just true and how it, uh, uh, wealth tends to isolate people. It also happens that churches tend to attract people of the same socioeconomic level as well. It's very rare to find millionaires with people who are in the working poor all together in one church. They're usually in separate churches. Do you know what that does for us compared to Israel? It isolates me from seeing the needs of others. And so the amount I give, well, it's the same as my neighbors. They give about the same, too. <laughs> well, that doesn't prove anything, right? But boy, it makes me feel OK, because at least I do a little better job than you know, Joe down the street and, uh, and uh, Grace around the corner. But in Israel, they knew their neighbors. Every seven years was a special year. And then every 50 years was to be a jubilee where everything was forgiven, debts released, and everyone is given back land so they can be a part of the community. It makes a huge difference. Paul is calling us here, as he's calling the Corinthians, who happen to be kind of probably much wealthier than a few other churches in that area at that time, especially the Macedonians in northern Greece. He's calling them to radically place themselves in the midst of the whole body of Christ, to see the needs of others and to respond to them, and to understand that he's not complaining about anyone. He's not critiquing that wealth generation is a bad thing in any form. He's just saying, now you've got an opportunity and a calling. 
you've got a way you can use it. I have loved a lot of that about this church, by the way. You may not always see it, and yet I get to see and have the privilege of knowing people have responded whenever they've heard a need within the congregation or in the extended community, from students to other families, where you go like, oh, they really, do they need this? Um, you know, I want to do this anonymously, but I see a need I'm going to, I want to fulfill. And it's like, do you know how much praise and thanksgiving is given to God when we care for one another, love one another in tangible ways here? I want to see that keep growing because I think that's what Paul is getting at here in this. It's a unique calling to get to know the very vast amount of people within the Christian church some who are wealthier, maybe, and in better situations, and others who are poorer and in need, and that we're going to treat everybody in such a way that everybody has enough. This is how Paul talks about it here. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich in every way, so you can be generous in every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, before I explain what he's talking about here, I think, like I said before, I need to probably explain what it's not. This is not a prosperity gospel. Notice in this text, it doesn't say you're going to get an increase in your bank account, another car in the driveway, it's not an increase in your financial status or blessing. It is an increase in your righteousness. Okay? And now you think, oh, wait a minute, but that sounds like it is not, in this instance, Paul is not talking about your moral kind of bank account either. He's not talking about any brownie points or merit badges you get for doing a little good here or there for others. Righteousness here, and righteousness throughout the Bible, the word dikaiosyne, the Greek word for that, is about right relationships. And what he is talking about is when you give, when you give out of your surplus, when you are even like the Macedonians who have nothing and yet they still give. When you give, you are creating right relationships and connecting people together in the community of Christ and in this world and reversing the brokenness and the frayed um, status of our community. And boy, tell me if we are not in a position of everything's frayed and falling apart. We are even insular we are even trying to isolate ourselves from others. And Paul is calling the Corinthians and all of us to instead of breaking ties, of making relationships and reweaving community, connecting together again. Your righteousness is the... Is your right relationships with others, and how you have an opportunity to do something great. This is where the world's going, by the way. 
right relationships where everything is righted that has been wrong and that we are connecting things as God is going to finally do it one day. Second Peter 3 says it this way. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Do you realize God is going to bring heaven and earth together? There's not going to be a disparate disconnection anymore. No brokenness between heaven and earth. No brokenness between human beings. Right relationships across the board. The world back in harmony the way God intended it to be and to grow. Where everything that has been unraveled is back knitted together where everything that has made this world such a sad place becomes untrue, where race and race and nation and nation and wars and poverties and conflict are all resolved, and we are right back where God wants us to always be. And you and I get to do that now in little ways with our wealth. Now, I remember <laughs> a few weeks ago in our campus ministry on Wednesday nights, we talked about money issues with college students, and I was there. Boy, I was there even after college. But we think so often we have nothing to give. You know, oh, I, I'm, I'm, you know I'm at this. It's like you still have. No matter what level, just like the widow with two little copper coins, you've got You've got a way to help reweave things back. It doesn't, it's not the amount. It's the intent and the willingness to be a part of a greater story, and God will use you for that. So Timothy Keller put it this way. He says, we do with our money now what Jesus did with his miracles. Do you realize when Jesus did miracles, they weren't like, look at me. Wow. There I go. No, his miracles were all connected to what God wants to do with this whole world. So he healed those who were sick. He cleansed the lepers. He brought people back into community. He fed the poor and the hungry. He uh, took nature that was in chaos and brought it back into order. Those are the things that God has always intended the whole world to where things are headed and you get to do with your money and resources, your time and talents, what God, Jesus, did with his miracles. His miracles are pointers to the future God has for you and for me. They're not just to show how divine he is. And because we know that is where God is heading this world and where things are going, we know we have meaning and purpose. And your giving is not just about doing a little charity. It's reweaving society back together, bringing wholeness where there's brokenness, making a difference in the lives of people. You know, Sebastian Younger wrote a book <clears throat> um, uh, called Tribes. And in it, he um, says this that I think just nails the issues that we're dealing with. He says, humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. Everybody is just basically expendable these days. The only thing that I've got is to just have fun myself, you know, try to find ways to amuse myself, to fidget with my money, because death is coming someday. No. 
God may not need, like, he does not need you, but he wants you. And you are his plan for this world. We as the body of Christ are the plan for each other. We are the ones who get to knit the world back together that has broken apart because of the fall. We are the ones who can make that difference. You do realize, too, that Jesus really was the wealthiest person ever. Sorry, none of the moguls today who've got a trillion are even close. Because Jesus had everything. And I mean literally everything. He owns it all. Everything was created through him and for him, as Colossians says. He's the wealthiest of all, and yet... How does he live and what does he do? He doesn't even have a penny to his name. And in the last and the greatest deed he ever did, he is stripped of his very own clothing and all of his dignity. And he even then, upon the cross, pours out his very life. He gives everything away. He becomes absolutely poor to make you rich. That's how 2 Corinthians 8 says it. And because he makes us rich, we are able to pour out our blessings on others and to follow in his stead and to enrich other lives. You want a great purpose? You want a great meaning? You want something that makes a difference? It's just how you live, from the smallest to the greatest things that you do every day. And that's why Paul ends this whole section with words about how giving and thanks go together. He says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And then finally, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And thank you that you are present here, Lord. Your spirit has been present. Your words are amazing. What you have done, Jesus, for each one of us. And that you would call us a unique calling to be people who are so giving in eye-popping proportions, in ways that our neighbors don't understand, that we are able to just do it hilariously, joyously, generously, Lord, to live in such a way that really does make a difference in the lives of people around us. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunities I've had, um, even in this past week, to be with different individuals. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give our church to serve and to give through love in the name of Christ, through our toy drive, through, Lord, just um, giving of food to the Interfaith Food Pantry, you name it, Lord, to the countless ways each of our, uh, the members here, each of the, these uh, people in the body of Christ, how we do it on a daily basis, Lord, anonymously. We don't care about it. It's just in response to your goodness and grace, Lord. We pray that we are able in our small ways to be a part of your big plan, the greatest plan and the greatest hope this world has, and that through our giving we might instill a bit more hope in other people that this world is not just one blasted thing after another, not a bunch of fidgeting just to wait till we die, but it's a glorious road of self-sacrifice and service to others 
that will matter for eternity because we are, have a home of righteousness where everything is right again, Lord, between heaven and earth, between you and us, and each of us with each other, Lord. Thank you for that. Lord, there are some special prayers that we lift up to you today. We continue to lift up Lauren and Keith up in Gainesville. We pray your healing upon them and that you continue to be glorified in their lives. We lift up to you, Lord, um, Mike, as she is um, you know, struggling with uh, broken ribs, Lord, and we pray your healing there. We pray for all our students, Lord, who have left for the week, that they would be refreshed. And um, Lord, that you would give them a great Thanksgiving where they not only give thanks to you, but also to their family, and that um, everyone is drawn closer to you. They come back refreshed for the last few weeks of this semester. Lord, um, we thank you for the opportunities that you've placed before us and how we can give. No matter our income level, no matter where we're at, Lord, we can still give <clears throat> our time and of our wealth and of our resources for each other. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is in need in this church in any way, Lord, anyone in this fellowship, anyone connected to us in our neighborhoods, Lord, that when we hear of those needs, Lord, that you help meet those needs through us. Lord, we're going to, in a moment, uh, receive the offering, and it's just another way to give you thanks, Lord, for your goodness and grace in our lives, for what you've done for us personally, and how you are moving us to an eternity with you. So we ask that you'd bless that offering, Lord, and use it for your kingdom's sake. And Lord, as we will come to the Lord's table this day, Lord, we come empty of, uh, of any worthiness on our own, and yet you call us. And therefore, we are worthy because of your call upon our lives. Lord, you know, if we would say we have no sin, if we would say we have no greed, if we have no egotism in our life, if we say we have no issues, we just deceive ourselves, not you. You know better. But we are going to confess all our sins to you, Lord, right now. You know us inside and out. You know our going and our coming. You know our secret thoughts, Lord. We confess all that to you now. And you forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is your promise, and we thank you for that. So prepare us, O Lord, to receive the great gift that you give of yourself, that we may commune with you and each other. And make us such a body of Christ, Lord, that those who have will all have enough, and we can all give thanks to you for how you work through this community here. All these things we pray to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.